0: Hello, and welcome to UCD ScholarCast. I'm John Brannigan, series editor. The following lecture in the series The Literatures and Cultures of the Irish Sea is by Professor Nick Groom, professor in English at the University of Exeter. Draining the Irish Channel, Identity, Sustainability and the Politics of Water. Navigating the Irish Sea is, like navigating all seas, a navigation of texts. And the first Irish Sea text confirms that trying the waters is essential to discovering Irish identity. The historian Geoffrey Keating claimed that the first person to set foot upon Ireland after the deluge was one Avner, the father of poets. He writes, this adventure is mentioned by an old poet whose verses are to be found in the Psalter of Cashel. Avner Beotha's son, we all agree, after the flood first tried the Irish Sea. He proved the soil and from the earth he tore a handful of rich grass, then left the shore and so returned. The waters have a permanency. They remain after the flood, encircling the island, which has emerged from the catastrophe fertile and green with rich grass. This girdle of channels, seas, and oceans defines the land contained within, sustaining the identity of Ireland as an island. This sea was named by the Romans Oceanus Hibernicus, while that to the south, was the Oceanus Vergivius? By the 18th century, on which I will be focusing in this paper, the Irish Sea was also known as St George's Channel. In The Complete Fisherman, for example, James Sanders remarked in 1724, upon the Irish and Welsh seas, that is to say the Severn Sea, vulgarly called the Bristol Channel and the sea between England and Ireland called St George's Channel. The Irish Sea was, also more apocalyptically, called the Irish Gulf. This may have been in reference to its well-deserved reputation for turbulence. In one of the letters that comprise his journey through England, John Mackey described in 1724 that at Holyhead, the packet boats from Dublin arrive thrice a week and are larger than those to Holland and France, fitted with all conveniences for passengers, and indeed, St George's Channel requires large ships in winter, the wind being generally very boisterous in these narrow seas. The appropriately named Gerard Boat, however, disagreed in his Natural History of Ireland of 1726. Chapter 6 begins with a section headed, The Irish Sea, not so tempestuous as it is bruted to be. And he quotes choreographical authorities, such as Salinas, Geraldus, Camden and Speed, before putting them right by means of the Irish alchemist and experimental poet Richard Stanihurst. Gerard Boat writes, That part of the Irish Sea which divideth Ireland from Great Britain is very much defamed, both by ancient and modern writers, in regard of its boisterousness and tempestuousness, as if it were more subject to storms and raging weather than any other, and consequently not to be passed without very great danger. Yea, it is a common proverb in England, as unquiet as the Irish Sea. Nevertheless, it is nothing so bad as they make it. And in the words of Stanihurst, in his annotations upon Géraldus, the Irish Sea is quiet enough, except when by high winds it is stirred. So as not only in the summer, but even in the midst of winter, people do pass it to and fro. It's altogether true, and confirmed by daily experience. True it is that some ships do perish upon this, but the same happeneth also on other seas, who are all subject to the disaster of tempests and shipwrecks. Gerard Boat attributes wrecks to long dark winter nights and ships foundering on rocks, and he warns the reader and prospective mariner to beware of the strong and distinctive tides here. It is, however, worth noting in passing that Stannyhurst was a spicely idiosyncratic writer, whose definition of a smooth crossing may have well been at odds with usual expectations. In his translation of the first four books of Virgil's Aeneas, translated into English heroical verse of 1582, Stanleyhurst developed a radical new style of poetry based around sound and meter. This is his description of a storm. The whilst-in-the-sky seat-great-bouncing-rumbelow-thundering-rattleth, to sleet thick hail knob is added. The Tyrian Fellowship with youthful Trojan Assembly and Venus-haughty-nephew do run to sundry-set houses. Huge floods loudly freaming from mountains, lofty betrolling. Dido and the Trojan Captain do jumble in one den. Then the earth crawls the banes, there too watery Juno, the chaplain, seems up the bed match, the fire and air testify wedlock, and nymphs in mountains high tip do squeak, belay low, yearning. Whatever the conditions on Irish sea crossings, it was inevitably the major route between Ireland and Great Britain, and a rich fishery. In a tour through the whole island of Great Britain, divided into circuits or journeys, of 1724, Daniel Defoe comments that the English westward trade was split between Liverpool and Bristol. One has all the north, he writes, and the other all the south of Britain, to correspond in, and Ireland is, as it were, all their own and shared between them as above. Defoe also notes... That Whitehaven, on the Cumbrian coast, is England's third biggest port for exporting coal after Newcastle and Sunderland, as it supplies Dublin and all the towns of Ireland on that coast. He observes of the maritime traffic on the Irish Sea that Tis frequent in times of war, or upon the ordinary occasion of winds to have 200 sail of ships at a time go from this place for Dublin,' Loden with coals. Coal was also supplied to Ireland from Irwin in Scotland, exporting to Belfast and Carrickfergus, and again down as far as Dublin. Below the waves, the waters were mainly fished for herring and salmon, and there were allegedly no lobsters in the Irish Sea. The early 18th century emphasis on the Irish Sea as a prized trade route and a rich fishery is a mercantilist redefinition of the waters that attempts to eclipse, or perhaps rather quell, the deeper currents of identity. The Irish Sea not only irrigates Irish identity, it defines the archipelago. Without it, the Isles would simply be the island. And although seafaring and the island mentality is acknowledged to run deep in English identity, the sea, specifically the Irish sea, is also the medium of communication and interaction with Ireland. Hibernia was represented as a more contained island than the three nations of Britain. Engravings concerning Irish affairs, such as this account of the controversy surrounding Wood's halfpence, in which a new coinage with a debased intrinsic value was introduced to Ireland, reminded viewers of the omnipresent shipping channel between the two countries. Ireland was not geographically part of Britain. Emile Durkheim posits that space is not an absolute or abstract set of coordinates, but is constituted by relative relationships inflected by emotional and therefore social values. This is a reminder that the Irish Sea has a history, not only in its name, but in its material being, the entire body of water and its social, political, and cultural significance. And the history of the deep sea can be excavated in the same way that the history of the deep land can be excavated as a catachthonic investigation into subterranean or submarine identity. This is best shown by imagining what would happen if the Irish Sea ceased to exist. But before the Irish Sea is drained, some politics. By the mid-18th century, English, that is Anglo-Norman, control extended across the whole of the Atlantic archipelago. In Ireland, of course, this was the age of ascendancy, which had effectively begun with the Treaty of Limerick in 1691. Dublin expanded massively in this period, from a small town to the second largest city of the British Empire. It was built in a fashionable Georgian style that rivaled Edinburgh, and was a significant cultural centre. David Garrick performed at Thomas Sheridan's theatre, and Handel's Messiah was first performed at Dublin City Hall. Yet Ireland was ruled by a minority Protestant elite who were increasingly subordinate to the British government. In 1720, Westminster passed the Declaratory Act, known as the Sixth of George I, which asserted British power over the Irish Parliament to bind the kingdom and people of Ireland and determine foreign policy. And in 1751, control of the Irish economy also moved to Westminster. Imports of Irish woollen goods were banned by Westminster, and imports of food only allowed after 1748. Ireland was in effect a cash cow for absentee landlords and served as a vast garrison for the British Army when it was not on campaign. Opposition to British rule had been fiercely articulate since William Molyneux's attack, the case of Ireland being bound by Acts of Parliament in England first published in 1698. Molyneux was a friend of Jonathan Swift, and in the 1720s, Swift himself was, reluctantly, one of the foremost critics of the British government in his Drapier's letters of 1724 and later, and other satirical pamphlets. These included his attack on Wood's halfpence, his short view of the state of Ireland in 1728, which attacked the trade restrictions in Ireland, and of course culminated in his notorious and exemplary satire A Modest Proposal of 1729. At the same time as he was writing as the drapier and pamphleteering, Swift was also completing Travels into Several Remote Nations of the World, which would be published in 1726 under the name Lemuel Gulliver. As Swift wrote in a letter on the 19th of January 1724, I have left the country of the horses and am in the flying island, where I shall not stay long, and my last two journeys will soon be over. This, the third of Gulliver's voyages, and the last to be written of the four, described Gulliver's encounter with the flying island of Laputa and the philosophers and projectors to whom he is subsequently introduced. These episodes were derived from early scriblerian satire developed with John Arbuthnot, John Gay, Robert Harley, Thomas Parnell, and Alexander Pope. But Swift gave a decidedly Irish spin to the island, in a passage that ferociously described the woods' half-prince de Barclay as an allegory, arguing that it could have deservedly brought down the British government and monarchy. In this censored scene, the citizens of Lindalino, or Dublin, threatened to kill the king and all his servants and entirely change the government. In addition to its blistering political satire, Gulliver's Travels is laced with topical references to the South Sea and the South Sea Bubble, the ruinous stock market crash of 1720. In 1721, Swift had written a poem, The Bubble, on the over-speculation, fraudulent dealing, fantastical money-making schemes and nascent capitalist greed of the times. He wrote, the sea is richer than the land. I heard it from my granam's mouth, which now I clearly understand, for by the sea she meant the south. Bubbles were joint stock companies that dazzled credulous investors, yet had the life expectancy and profit potential of a soap bubble. They were symptomatic of the age of projectors, projectors being the innovators and financial backers of get-rich-quick wheezes. Daniel Defoe was a typical example, investing and rapidly losing money in the manufacture of roofing tiles, the farming of civet cats for perfume, and the development of a bathyscape, which is a primitive submarine to recover lost treasure from the seabed. Hence, during Gulliver's visit to Balnabari, Swift describes a club of projectors from the Academy of Legado who proposed diverting a river and digging a canal to direct water by means of pipes and engines to a new mill on the side of a mountain. Because, he writes, the wind and air upon a height agitated the water and thereby made it fitter for motion and because the water descending down an declivity would turn the mill with half the current of a river whose course is more upon a level. However, after employing a hundred men for two years, the project is abandoned. It is surely no coincidence that the Grand Canal of Ireland connected Dublin with the River Shannon was first proposed in 1715. That project, however, was eventually completed in 1779. As Pat Rogers points out, these sorts of activities are examples of the commercial exploration of natural resources. Pumping water seems to have been particularly appealing to projectors. In his tour, Defoe noted an innovative new mill devised by George Sorokold, an engineer specialising in hydraulics, and also many others, including Thomas Savory and Thomas Newcomen, the most celebrated engineers of the period, who built contraptions for pumping water out of mines. As the broadside the Bubbler's Mirror, or England's Folly, from about 1720, described the market, Come all ye coals, my water-engine by to pump your flooded mines and coal pits dry. Some projects are all wind, but ours is water, and though at present low, may rise hereafter. Pumping water out of flooded mines was, however, small beer compared with the possibilities of pumping water out of flooded land, Land reclamation had already been underway in agriculture for decades and was an established aspect of land management. The second chapter of John Mortimer's The Whole Art of Husbandry or The Way of Managing and Improving of Land in 1716 is devoted to reclamation, draining and improving bogs, fens, marshes and so forth. Projectors and modern agriculturalists both agreed that water was something to be controlled and restricted. Samuel Johnson's remarks to Alan MacLean, while on his tour of the Hebrides later in the century, reveal this prejudice. As James Boswell reported, Sir Alan MacLean bragged that Scotland had the advantage of England by its having more water. Johnson replied, Sir, we would not have your water to take the vile bogs which produced it you have too much. A man who is drowned has more water than either of us. And then he laughed. But this was surely robust sophistry. For the people of taste in England, who have seen Scotland, own that its variety of rivers and lakes makes it naturally more beautiful than England in that respect. Pursuing his victory over Sir Allen, Johnson proceeded. Your country consists of two things, stone and water. There is indeed a little earth above the stone in some places, but a very little, and the stone is always appearing. It is like a man in rags, the naked skin is still peeping out. The primacy of land over water is here roundly asserted. Land should be rock and earth, water is for the sea. But it is a small step from here to think not merely of reclaiming land from waterlogged environments, of reclaiming land from the sea itself, a reversal of the deluge accomplished by the expertise of science and industry, the salvaging of the primal biblical catastrophe. While the Dutch culture of dike building influenced land reclamation and security in Britain, this branch of thinking actually emerged from the innocuous field of tide tables. As a maritime island nation, Tide tables in Britain were, unsurprisingly, well-developed in the period. The ebbs and flows of tidal currents could be predicted with impressive accuracy. This was not meteorological forecasting or weather law, still less astrological prognostication, but the application of the new science to maritime and commercial interests. Such techniques of calculation could be applied to all sorts of areas, political economy was given a new arithmetical basis, which was, of course, rapidly and scathingly attacked in Swift's cannibal polemic, A Modest Proposal. But political arithmetic was the new orthodoxy and provided, for example, the theoretical basis for the control of the highlands after the Battle of Culloden in 1746, influencing, for instance, road-building programmes and the Ordnance Survey. The unruliness of the sea could therefore be measured and, if not controlled, at least reliably governed in the interests of trade and empire. The potential transformation of the sea into land also received intellectual impetus from theories of circulation. It is worth bearing in mind that the body had comparatively recently been redefined as a circulatory system by William Harvey in 1628. But Harvey's ideas on the circulation of blood were, according to the 20th century maverick social critic Ivan Illich, slow to spread. To accommodate circulation, Illich wrote, the quivering and symbol-laden flesh of tradition must be recast as a functional system of filters, conduits, valves and pumps. Illich notes that by the early 18th century, the notion of circulation was being applied by botanists to sap, then to the spread of ideas, and around 1750 money is described as circulating. And interestingly, the word circulation itself derives from the Latin circulator, an itinerant performer or street busker. But in fact, the term was being used some half a century sooner than Illich claims. Already by the early 18th century, circulation was being used in England to describe the passions, and there are instances of fashionable use in 17th century popular literature. By at least 1701, credit in the economy was being described as circulating, and in Johnson's Dictionary of 1755, Swift is quoted as writing on the circulation of human things. The c too was conceptualized as a circulatory system rather than an inert body, most notably in Joseph Meade's treatise with the self explanatory title An essay on currents at sea, by which it appears there is reason to apprehend that the sea is not a fluid in a state of rest, except those motions which are caused by the impulse of winds, and that are known by the name of tides, and consequently that this earth is not of a uniform density, according to the supposition of Sir Isaac Newton, but that the currents of the Gulf of Florida, also on the coast of Brazil, and the northern indraft on this western coast, are currents of circulation, kept up by different densities in this earth and its motion round its axis. The combination of land reclamation projects, political arithmetic, and the comprehension of the sea as a process that could be directed or influenced, rather than as an absolute given, meant that the sea could be improved. In other words, done away with. The sea could become not only the medium, but the very ground of British colonialism. The sea could literally become a new territory. Land could be created from unproductive water. In practical terms, then, the sea was recast as a geography of natural resources that could potentially be pumped, mined and diverted using locks and drains all for the health of the nation. Reclamation was therefore an expansion of territory beyond the immediate borders of one's own land. It was a striking metaphor for imperialism, not only because it redefined physical geography in political terms, but also because it literally redrew the map of the world, draining the sea, like draining marshes, water meadows, floodplains and so forth, is also a radical example of the impact of commercial ecology on identity and even raises questions of environmental sustainability today. In Arthur C. Clarke's 1972 science fiction novel Rendezvous with Rama, a character remarks in passing that the Mediterranean has been drained in order to assist archaeological study. Preposterous as this sounds, perhaps in the 22nd century heritage tourism will be more important than life and death. More seriously, perhaps, in September 1930, the magazine Modern Mechanics, subtitled Yesterday's Tomorrow Today, reported a scheme to drain the North Sea to ease problems of European overpopulation. It states, If the extensive schemes for the drainage of the North Sea are carried out according to the plan illustrated above, which was conceived by a group of eminent English scientists, 100,000 square miles will be added to the overcrowded continents of Europe. The reclaimed land will be walled in with enormous dikes, similar to the Netherland dikes, to protect it from the sea, and the various rivers flowing into the North Sea will have their courses diverted to different outlets by means of canals. The Irish Sea covers a more modest 40,000 square miles. Nevertheless, in 1722, an anonymous author, styling himself with the degree A.M. in Hydrostat, published a proposal in Dublin with the title Thoughts of a Project for Draining the Irish Channel. Thoughts of a Project for Draining the Irish Channel is a satire on both the South Sea bubble and Anglo Irish politics. It capitalises on the craze for projects and speculation scientific advances in hydraulics and circulation, resource management and political arithmetic, and improvement and reclamation. It is also focused on Dublin and was an almost immediate response to local plans to improve the port by dredging. The problem with Dublin Harbour was that it contained a significant bar, or bank of sand, which presented a serious obstacle to ships and therefore to trade. As Gerard Boat described the situation, "'Dublin haven hath a bar in the mouth, "'upon which at high flood and spring tide "'there is fifteen and eighteen feet of water, "'but at the ebb and neap tide, but six. "'With an ordinary tide, you cannot go the quay of Dublin "'with a ship that draws five feet of water, "'but with a spring tide you may go up with ships "'that draw seven and eight feet. "'Those that go deeper cannot go nearer Dublin "'than the Ring's End.' a place three miles distant from the bar, and one from Dublin. This haven almost all over fall is dry with the ebb, as well below Ring's End as above it, so as you may go dry foot round about the ships which lie at an anchor there. Ships therefore risked running aground because of the combined hazards of the shallow channel and the windswept bay. Moreover, as silt and sand was used for ballast, Boats jettisoning this into the bay to lighten ships had raised the bed of the bay and eroded sandbanks. In 1707, this led to a ballast board being established, but the problem required a much more radical solution. In September 1713, the hydraulic engineer Captain John Perry arrived in Dublin at the invitation of Sir Alexander Cairns to assess a proposition of mine for the making of a better depth of water going over the bar. Perry spent three months studying the problem before returning to London to repair the Thames embankment. Perry, who had studied Dutch water management technology and worked for the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, building canals, dams and locks, visited Dublin again in 1720 and 1721 and published An Answer to Objections Against the Making of a Basin with Reasons for the Bettering of the Harbour of Dublin. In this treatise... Perry proposed building a new common shore parallel to the river. This channel would be properly drained and sealed to answer objections that seawater would stagnate or flood districts, affecting property and land rights. From the current size and unloading practices of ships, Perry estimated the probable effect on the size of cargoes and the consequent impact on imports. Coal, for example, would become cheaper. He compared the potential expanded capacity of Dublin with the increased harbour size at Liverpool, which, from the end of the 17th century, had begun to compete with Dublin as a route to North America and the West Indies, and he also remarked on the seawall built at Tynmouth to reclaim land. Perry was back again in 1725 to survey and map the bay, but his proposals to make the port more navigable were ultimately rejected. By this time, some 1,834 ships, totalling 90,758 tonnes, entered the harbour annually, accounting for more than half the imports into Ireland. So this is the context for draining the Irish Channel. The anonymous author of the pamphlet begins by describing the boisterous weather caused by the narrow passage of the Irish Sea. The channel is so cramped by the shores on each side that in time, for want of elbow room, you'll find nothing but the sea foaming, roaring, bouncing, frisking, skipping, jerking, heaving, setting, tossing, as if in a ferment and full of frothy and fiery billows. Consequently, the author notes, commerce is hindered, passengers drowned or starved, ships and goods lost, merchants ruined, trade destroyed. Such calamities will obviously be avoided if the sea is drained, and Perry is proposed as the man to do so. The author of Draining the Irish Channel is suspicious of Perry's reasons for visiting Dublin to date, suggesting that his dredging proposals are a money-making project, something Perry had explicitly denied in his own answer to objections. But the anonymous author points out that draining the entire sea instead will provide far richer benefits than simply improving the harbour. There will be found, without doubt, he writes, immense treasure, enough to defray all the expense and to pay very well for the trouble of doing the same. This will encourage projectors to invest no less than £100,000 in the scheme, at a remuneration of a pound for their penny. The author of Draining the Irish Channel speculates on the vast quantities of gold, silver in bullion specie, pearl, rubies and diamonds, and vast quantities of noble timbers. Precious submarine minerals will be free to be excavated, and from the larger sea game, a variety of sea ivory can be collected. Anticipating the Admiralty's objection to the loss of military bases and routes, as well as duties, the anonymous author balances this against the potential savings. There will be fewer ships required. Locks at either end of the drained sea will allow passage upriver on the longer waterways of the Liffey and the Mersey and administer custom duties more effectively. And land transport will be a safer way of traversing the distance. Instead of being at the expense of packet boats, he writes, we will have post horses and post boys. Despite the British preference for travelling by sea, land transport is promoted as a way of employing millions of poor families. Other rivers will be carried away in large trunks, that is conduits. The success of the whole construction project is assured by the construction innovations in canal and sluice building on the continent and Captain Perry's Dutch training. Details are provided as to where best to position the locks. Their design is to be based on those currently on the Liffey, and they can be constructed from salvaged timber already seasoned by the sea. The locks will also double as fishing traps for large marine livestock, such as whales and sharks, as well as sea cows, which apparently taste as good as veal. And once the sea is drained, huge stocks of crabs, and lobsters with claws as big as the antlers of elks, will become available. The harvesting of marine phosphorescence will provide illumination for everything from streets to lighthouses. Shooting stars generally fall into the sea, and may be gleaned as sources of light and heat, and every old moon has also sunk into the depths, and so may be fished out for similar commercial advantage. A variety of sea monsters will be available to furriers, such as sea goats, kids, rabbits, hares, cats and sea kittlings, apes, baboons, monkeys, squirrels, ferrets, sea bitches, babies, foxes and their cubs, and from which can be manufactured tippets or stoles and riding breeches. And, says the author, would it not be a pretty sight to see a seahorse at the tower? Such a present was never known to be made to any monarch on Earth, and who knows what may happen in this reign. Other sea creatures may provide perfume. Sea Cantharides will supply apothecaries with vesicants, or water removers, and aphrodisiacs, and the variety of sea fauna can be utilised to cure both coughs and sexually transmitted diseases. In short, he says, We need never go to the Indies for drugs if we once came acquainted with and to a perfect knowledge and understanding of the wonders of the deep. The pamphlet concluded there are two pages of wild errata. Four, after long and mature deliberation, read 150 to 80. Four, whores and boards, read members and tools. Four, Poop Petticoats and Bum Perspectives Read inquire Within and You Shall Know Further For Anchovies Oil and Vinegar Read Radishes, Oysters and Bulls Pizzles For The North Strand Read All in Good Time For She Hides Her Face Read She Shows Her ass. For Country and Court Party Read washballs and spectacles for fee far see si far re far low po low read what you please for i'm in haste there's also a final promise that draining the irish channel will discover those elusive chimerae perpetual motion and longitude could jonathan swift be the author of draining the irish channel it is tempting to suggest as much his satire on the Academy of Legado's projectors in Gulliver's Travels is specifically aimed at an hydraulic adventure, and there are other more intriguing connections. The odd nonce words delineating exotic races that pepper draining the Irish Channel compare favourably with Swift's own inventions. We may, writes the anonymous author, tis likely meet with some foreigners taking a tour to our Channel as your Laligos, from the sea of Mauritania, one of which is able to overset the best man of war in Europe. Your Vronoscopos, with one eye, which when taken out and well cured, is equal to the carbuncle taken by Captain Ivory some time ago out of the great mogul's daughter's saddle, which I have often had in my hand. Your aquipenses, Callionymus, Remeligos, Remoras, Arikas, Oxormae, Lolligunculas, and Antakeae, which are natives of the famous river Borysthenes, some of whose skins are better than any of our tanned hides or buff either, being often tried and found to be cannon-proof. The crazy natural history of Irish sea fauna is also suggestive. Moreover, most of these names are, again, otherwise unrecorded. The sea earwig, or twitch bell, the tadpole, the waterlop, the churworm or ricket, the sea gnat or jenny spinner. Similarly, there is a shared interest in contemporary fashions, such as hoop petticoats and setting dogs between Swift's satires and draining the Irish Channel. But all of these are at best only passing references. The dedicatee, R, D, is an opaque reference the mentions of my friend St and Mr L, now at hand, are equally unclear, although the former may conceivably refer to Swift's colleague John Stern, Bishop of Clocker, and from 1721, Vice-Chancellor of Trinity College. More promising is the anonymous author's reference to perpetual motion, which is also mentioned by Swift in a discourse concerning the mechanical operation of the spirit a tritical essay upon the faculties of the mind, and, again, in Gulliver's travels. This submarine ambition of draining the Irish Channel is given in the concluding note to the pamphlet. N.B. In my next thoughts, you shall have an account of the particular places of the Channel wherein, most likely, the perpetual motion and the longitude are to be grappled up, for you will allow that tis a matter of great depth to find those out. While it was not unusual for commentators to link the search for ascertaining longitude with perpetual motion, Gulliver's meditations on what the strolled would live to see evokes the final paragraph of draining the Irish Channel, linking maritime shifts in rivers and seas with impossible inventions. As Swift wrote, Add to all this the pleasure of seeing the various revolutions of states and empires, the changes in the lower and upper world, ancient cities in ruins and obscure villages become the seats of kings. Famous rivers lessening into shallow brooks, the ocean leaving one coast dry and overwhelming another, the discovery of many countries yet unknown, barbarity overrunning the politest nations and the most barbarous become civilised. I should then see the discovery of the longitude, the perpetual motion, the universal medicine, and many other great inventions brought to the utmost perfection. As James Kelly has observed in his article Jonathan Swift and the Irish Economy in the 1720s, Swift had little patience with visionary schemes that promised immediate solutions because he accepted neither the mercantilist premises nor the optimistic expectations of the Irish economy on which they were invariably founded. Although Perry's proposals would seem to be fairly mild compared with the Woods-Halfpence affair, the rapid escalation from improving a harbour to draining the sea does demonstrate how the logic of hydraulics and irrigation Can easily be taken to extremes. Kelly does, however, note that in Swift's unpublished answer to several letters from unknown hands to improve the condition of Ireland, he recommended among improving the highways, planting trees, abolishing the Irish language, inculcating virtue in the population, counteracting absenteeism, encouraging agriculture and minting of coin, the reclamation of bogs. Well, the case is not proven. But even if draining the Irish Channel is not by Jonathan Swift, it nevertheless deserves a wider audience. What are the ultimate implications of this drainage project? Is it proposed as a way of extending England, or Wales, or Ireland, or Scotland, or even the Isle of Man? All five have Irish sea coastlines. And how would this activity affect Britain? This, I think, is the nub of the satire and the point of this paper. Can the Irish Sea be considered the axis around which the isles define themselves? I would therefore like to end on a thought experiment, taking the satire draining the Irish Channel at face value and projecting what could have been the consequences if the Irish Sea really had been drained in the 1720s. Let us consider how this new former Irish Sea, or FIS, territory, would be defined, named and governed. What form of rule would be appropriate? From the 17th century, Britain has had considerable problems in theorising the relationship between the four nations. No part of Britain is actually solely British, But has a primary identity as English, Irish, Manx, Scottish, Welsh, and so forth. The FIS would be an area with a very different history to that of the pre-existent land, reminding us of the profound influence of history, particularly political history, or perhaps rather of memory, on British identities. And who would populate this new land? Presumably, the mystical liberties embedded in the matter of Britain would influence the status of the new territory and thereby all contiguous territories. Lord Mansfield famously declared in 1772 that the air of England was too pure to be breathed by a slave. Consequently, it was believed that any slaves who set foot on English ground were instantly free. With the creation of the FIS, would English ground and its proclamations of liberty now literally run continuously to the west coast of Ireland, with all British subjects sharing similar status, rights, and opportunities? I propose the following scenario. Parliamentary union between Britain and Ireland would have occurred much sooner because the four countries would now occupy a single landmass, a continental island. New Britain. Wouldn't be able to run on multiple structures of government. The dual constitutional, legal and ecclesiastical structures of England and Scotland were difficult enough to manage and only really eased by the success and profits of empire. A single parliament would therefore govern and the head of state would be the monarch of England, Scotland, Ireland and France which still formed part of the royal style. The FIS would initially be run as a colony on the model of the American territories. Indeed, the American colonies should also be included in this model of the archipelago. It would need a very stable monarchy to keep all of this together. Would George III have been the man? Or possibly an emperor would be a better head of state, ceding more power to constituent territories. But not, I think, a confederacy of devolved parliaments. That would place too much power in the hands of politicians for 18th century tastes. A pragmatist would, I think, rapidly incorporate the FIS and the American colonies as full nations of New Britain, perhaps meaning that the American colonies would never have become independent. A state-of-the-art infrastructure consisting of turnpike roads would connect the internal territories, funded by the huge profits made from the drainage project. The North Devon and Cornish coasts and the South and West Irish coasts would be developed as shipping centres to connect with the American lands of New Britain and because the waters of St George's Channel would now be less turbulent. Access to copious and untapped new natural mineral resources would speed the industrialisation of landlocked cities such as Dublin and Liverpool, which would expand along the lines of Birmingham. Driven by the intellectual advances of the FIS Enlightenment. National attention would be focused on internal affairs. The global colonial project would be diverted as 40,000 square miles of new territory, an area larger than Maine, would now be available on the doorstep. The reduced coastline and shipbuilding centres would also slow trade and imperial expansion, and consequently, lead to a more isolationist foreign policy. A successful Jacobite invasion in 1745 would place a Catholic Stuart on the throne of Scotland and drive Scottish Presbyterians into the FIS. But the King of Scotland would rule by permission of the Hanoverian Emperor of New Britain to avoid civil war, and restrictions against Catholics across the land would be lifted. The European context of the former archipelago would almost completely disappear. His attention would be confined to internal affairs, North America, and Atlantic-based foreign policy. There would be little energy to pursue colonial activities in the Southern Hemisphere. What this scenario suggests is that the contradictions of British historiography and governance are brought into a much sharper focus if they are not mentally compartmentalised by the expediency of the sea. Some things happen more quickly, union and emancipation, and some things might not happen at all, the global expansion of empire. I don't think that British history is, in this model, a predominantly Whiggish history of progress, although some might disagree, but it's one of expediency and contingency. It could, however, becomes something quite different, a history of oppression and exploitation, in which the FIS becomes a huge industrial site mercilessly mined to fuel the ever-growing empire, while Liverpool and Dublin expand exponentially into sprawling megacities and over which remote London rules imperiously, a sort of cross between Mansfield Park and Blade Runner. Whatever the outcome of the drainage project, while Ireland would continue to exist as a material territory, it would no longer exist in the same way as a social or cultural identity. But then all the babies would, so to speak, have been drained away with the bathwater. The lack of oceanic permanency would be fatal to the traditional identities of England and in fact Britain as well, not to mention the Atlantic which would now be being eyed speculatively by the next generation of projectors. So the archipelago would have been historicized out of existence by removing the silver sea. The unnameable archipelago, in the words of Andrew McNeely, the unknown subject, in the words of J.G.A. Pocock, rests on the sea. But we must not forget that the sea itself has its own tales to tell and not allow the Irish channel to empty into the forgetful waters of Leithy. You've been listening to Professor Nick Groom in the UCD ScholarCast series on the literatures and cultures of the Irish Sea. A transcript of this lecture is available to download at www.ucd. Dot ie forward slash scholarcast.